book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you. And this morning's passage can be found on page 991. 991 also will be on screen behind me. Um, and I just arrive here and my heart is full. Uh, it is just an amazing privilege to think about. I mean, Hayden was mentioning the team that's in Haiti. I think there's 13 individuals from our church that are serving in another nation. Um, that's our second trip to Haiti. And uh, just want to thank Aaron, who's sitting in the back this morning. Uh, he also led worship. Uh, it's primarily due to his leadership that we're involved in the nation of Haiti. So thank you, Aaron. Uh, thanks for loving and leading us that way. Uh, and then just thinking about the sports academy. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, in this series how to become everyday missionaries, um, and this church is full of everyday missionaries, and it brings me great joy to be able to, to be a part of that. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to continue just to equip ourselves and think out loud about what does it mean for us to be a, a people um, that are on mission everywhere that we go, in every place, uh, to bring the good news of Jesus to bear on who we are and the people that we come in contact with. Uh, last week, we kicked off the series as we looked at Second Thessalonians, and we talked about um, just the, the big idea that what God has done for us that he wants to do for other people. The mercy that he's extended to us, he wants to extend to others. Um, and then this week, we're going to be looking exclusively at the message that we share. It's a, it's a message, I think, that oftentimes uh, we can think about just being in elementary terms, but we're going to unpack this message with some depth and some detail because uh, we want to be unified on the message that we're proclaiming, and then next week we're going to look at some methods and some ways that we can actually practically share our faith in some groups of people. Um, One thing that is absolutely unique, and this is to every person in this room, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, or um, he's going to save you in this meeting, or he's at work in your life and you're going to meet him in a week or two, this is what's unique to Christianity and to every person. Everybody has a unique story, right? There may be um, similarities to your story and how Jesus broke into your life. Um, There may be some similarities to some other people. There may be a group of people that met Jesus through a youth camp. There may be a group of people that just were exploring the claims of Christianity and opened up the scriptures and they were born again. Um, But your story in and of yourself is unique to you. The circumstances surrounding that, and that is actually by God's design. I mean, he um, is a very good Savior, and he knows specifically the circumstances to bring about in people's life to bring them to faith. And our stories are something that we are to be stewards of. Everyone has a unique story. Um, And I was just thinking back this week to church history, and I was thinking to my own story, and I was thinking about my own family. Um, There's just some crazy ways that people meet Jesus. Uh, Think about early church father Augustine. Um, He was a man that was just kind of steeped in immorality. Uh, He was experiencing profound brokenness and emptiness. And he heard like what seemed to be some kids singing in the background that said, hey, go and open the book. Go and open the book. And when he looked around, there were no kids there, but he thought, well, maybe this is God actually calling me. So he just opens up the Bible randomly to a passage, Romans chapter 13, and it talks about putting off immorality and talks about 
putting on Christ and he's saved. And church history is different because of that. I think about my own story, right? I was 20 years old. I woke up probably three or four in the afternoon, hungover. I was going to do my best mall rats impersonation. If you are a student of the 1990s, you don't have to go watch that movie. But like I was going to the mall to hang out and it was a life that was just full of emptiness. And some teenagers approached me and just began to share the gospel. And I was thinking about that this morning. My life is every, every bit different because of that encounter with Jesus. Because Jesus came to look for me. Fast forward a couple of weeks ago, my son Haddon, who's seven, comes home. He'd been having this conversation with a, another student on the bus. And he comes and says, Dad, I, I want to talk to you about some stuff. I want to invite Christ into my life. And um, me being a pastor, that's both simultaneously a joyful experience. And then it was also humbling um, because we talk about Jesus at our house every single day. But we were able to talk through the old, old story of the gospel and see Haddon place his faith in Jesus. And we keep talking about that. We're talking about the implications of that this morning. The story that we have received from God, that's our story, and the story that converts us, the message of Jesus, it's profound enough and powerful enough to change the hardest of hearts, and it's simple enough to save children, right? This is the message that we all share. Now, Romans 1.17 says that the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus, is the power of God unto salvation, So this is the only message that ever saves anyone. The message itself is powerful. So the only thing that ever saves anyone is the message of the gospel, but it meets people at unique points in time in their own stories. And as we think about becoming missionaries, we can immediately kind of rush to how should we love people better or how can we have a better mission strategy or how can we begin to overcome people's objections. Now, all of those things are great concerns, but before all of those things, we need to make sure that we're centered on the only message that will save anyone. One of my mentors and professors, Jerry Bridges, he says this. He says, the gospel is not only the most important message in all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. So let that sink in. There's only one message that's essential for all humanity, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experience the joy of living in it. So, Today is going to have kind of a twofold effect. We're going to clarify the good news of the gospel that is for us. So there's something that's powerful as we unpack it for ourselves, but it also is going to equip us to be able to share the gospel in more effective ways. Um, and my wife and I, we've been talking about this a lot lately. Um, it's easy to assume the message of the gospel right? It's easy to move on from the message of the gospel and go into the things that you think that you need to be doing for Jesus. Yes, there are things that we are called to do. And yes, there are many benefits that come from the gospel. But it is the message of Jesus Christ himself that actually changes everything for us. Another mentor said that we never move on from the gospel, but only to a deeper and a more profound understanding of the gospel. So 
We never graduate from the school of the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel. It's that message that it's simple enough for a child to understand, and it's profound enough that all the libraries in all the world cannot contain the wisdom and the power that's contained in it. So we're going to look at that message and how to better equip ourselves and our own souls through 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 6. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, so much now we want to be students of the gospel. We want the good news not to be assumed, but we want the gospel to be applied and understood and lived out and proclaimed in our lives. I pray that you would do the miracle of tearing away familiarity that would keep us from marveling at this message. I pray that you would send the Spirit to help us to see Jesus more clearly. I pray that both our affections and our lives would be different as a result of seeing Jesus. And I pray that you would equip us to see this message go to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the book of 1 Timothy, very quickly. The the book of 1 Timothy is written to the church of Ephesus after it's been going for a couple of decades. Um, This church had undergone some real doctrinal difficulty and some real problems, and so Paul sent Timothy in to begin to kind of lay again a good foundation of the gospel Um, Part of the problem was the leadership inside the church was kind of going haywire and they were departing from the message of the gospel. So they were trying to put in place sound leaders and sound doctrine. And at the center of that sound doctrine is the message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Now, this morning we're going to go deeper into the message of the gospel. We're just going to slow down and not assume that we all understand this message or we all understand the implications of this message. Um, It's important if this message truly is the power of God, that people can be changed and eternal destinies can be altered by simply hearing this message, it's pretty important that we get the message right. So we want to dial into this message of the gospel because, um, honestly, if you add to this message, you lose the message. If you begin to take things away from this message, 
It begins to water it down. You begin to lose the power of its message. So we want to simply give ourselves, what is this message that Jude tells us in the book of Jude that is the faith that's delivered once and for all for all the saints? What is the message that we are to proclaim? Now, there's two errors that people mostly fall into. If you are more in the conservative camp, you're going to probably fall into one error. If you are more from a liberal persuasion, you're going to fall into a different kind of error. The first one is legalism. Legalism is adding to the message of the gospel. It's adding rules and regulations and customs. And the the powerful thing about legalism is it's almost always the things that you think are essential. We're almost always blind to legalism and its its effects. And, And what's amazing about legalism is Legalism flows fundamentally at at its first from fear, but also from love. It's a group of people that want to be so jealous and love God that they begin to add things to the gospel. Now, the, the second error is theological liberalism. That's taking something away that's essential from the message of the gospel. The virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, the atonement. It's taking something away. And this too flows from love. It's a love for people. So we think, hey, we, we need to kind of control this message. There's a few things that we might want to leave out of this message. Some things that we may want to round off a little bit. But listen, this message is the power of God for salvation. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So if you add to this message or you take away from this message, you lose the message. So we want to know what this message is. So we made this diagram and we're going to talk and we're going to work our way through this diagram this morning. At the center of this Venn diagram is the gospel. It is the message that is delivered for all time, for all the saints. We're going to talk about the necessity of the gospel that's separate from the gospel. We're going to talk about the results of the gospel, and that's the fruit that we all experience. And then we're going to talk about how we live in light of the gospel. But this message, we don't want to add to or take away from this message. We want to keep this message at the center. So first, we're going to look at what makes this message absolutely necessary. Why is there, a, why is there news to announce? R.C. Sproul, if you are familiar with that name, is a theologian and a teacher. Um, he actually is growing quite older, and he is a little bit cantankerous. Um, he was giving a lecture at Yale University when some zealous college student came up to Dr. R.C. Sproul and said, Dr. Sproul, are you saved? And he said, saved from what? You can laugh. That's supposed to be funny. Saved from what? And the young man sheepishly just kind of hung his head a little bit and did the best job that he knew how to begin to share the message of the gospel. But in that moment, Dr. Sproul realized that there are whole groups of individuals. When you say, hey, have you been saved? They have no idea. Saved from what? So he wrote a book called Saved From What? So what is the reason that salvation and forgiveness is actually necessary. There's something that every person on this planet has in common, and it's that we all know that something's terribly wrong with the world that we live in, and if we're honest with ourselves, there's something fundamentally wrong with us. The Bible describes that core problem as sin. Sin is rebellion against God in the way that he's designed the universe to function, 
It can be willful rebellion when you're just, I mean, if you've been exposed to this book and you're like, hey, I just don't want to do that. Like, that's inconvenient for me. That's not going to work for me. That cramps my lifestyle. It can be that kind of willful rebellion. Or it can just be doing what comes naturally, right? I mean, sin in a, at its essence is selfishness. Where we're, it's, and what makes sin so powerful is that there's all these people in the world that have themselves at the center of their lives. And oftentimes those things bump into each other. And that's where we get pain and relational breakdown and suffering and evil. So sin and at its core is the problem of mankind. Romans 6.23 says this, that... If you've been in church, you've heard this, but you need to feel the weight of this. The wages of sin, their due penalty is death. The physical and spiritual death of the world happens because of the evil that exists in this world and the evil that exists inside of us. And unless you choose to ignore it, all you have to do is look outside your window each and every day and you'll see the evil that takes place in this world. There is oppression. There is racial injustice. There is suffering, right? No one cheers at a funeral, right? Everyone knows that there's something wrong with this world. Death is a constant reminder to us that sin is real and there are real consequences. But not only is there evil that exists in the world, there's evil that exists in all of us. And listen, not only is there evil, but God has wrath towards evil, right? So that's good news and bad news at the same time. That means God's not going to turn a blind eye to the suffering and the injustice that exists in this world right now. But it also means there's evil that lives inside of us. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I remember when I was in that context with the teenagers that came up to share the gospel with me in the mall, the only question that they asked me is that if you died right now, would you go to heaven or to hell, right? And I was just arrogant at the time, and I said, I know the reason that you're asking me that question. The answer you're looking for is I would go to hell, you know? And I said it with kind of like, hey, I like ACDC, I'm on a highway to hell kind of way. Like, I, that's just who I was. It didn't bother me at the time. But just that one conversation began to roll things over in my mind. I was like, if there is a God and he does have wrath, that's not good news for me. And so over the next couple of months, God began to work in my life. And they had invited me to a church, and that was the last place I really wanted to be. But then I began to hear this good news about Jesus. So sin, death, evil, the wrath of God, all these things make the gospel necessary. Now, the way that you process this bad news What makes the gospel necessary almost entirely falls along generational lines. Like if you consider yourself a millennial here, you probably view what's going wrong in the world. It's a generation that's had everything at their fingertips. And you probably view it in terms of satisfaction. That there's nothing that actually can deliver what you're looking for. Right? You have everything that you ever could possibly want, but you know that there's something missing. 
if you are of a little bit older generation, you probably process the need for the gospel in terms of sin and evil and destruction. And and most people that choose not to engage with Christianity choose not to engage with Christianity at this point. I don't want to believe in a God that would allow a world to have suffering and evil, right? Totally missing that God's wrath is the answer to evil and the evil and suffering that exists inside of this world. Now, I want to show you a painting. Uh, this is by uh, Edvard. I, he, I'm sure he's Scandinavian. Munch. This is one of the most famous paintings in all the world. It is called The Scream. Uh, incidentally, this is a lighter note, uh, Macaulay Culkin on Home Alone, uh, his scream was based off of this. All right, so this is a, a painting uh, near the end of the 19th century. Edvard Munch was a rationalist. He did not believe in the existence of God, and he believed that the world was a dark and an empty place, and he was just walking along one day, and he thought out about the world and how vast it was, that the earth was just this planet that was in the middle of the universe, and that no one in the universe cared if he would scream. And this is what he wrote about that. He said, I was walking down the road with two friends when the sun set, and suddenly the sky turned red as blood. I stopped and leaned against the fence, feeling unspeakably tired. Tongues of fire and blood stretched over the, the bluish-black fjord. My friends went on walking while I lagged behind, shivering with fear. Then I heard the enormous, infinite scream of nature. So he was experiencing the logical conclusion that there's nothing out there, that there's nothing in the universe, that he could scream and all it would do was go into infinity. Now, commenting on this reality, Mark Sayers, in his book, The Road Trip That Changed the World, says this, when a person lives in a morally insignificant universe, that means there's no such thing as right or wrong, there's no natural law or world, historic struggles and achievement, when one looks up into the stars, one sees not the gods, nor the handiwork of God, nor the portentous alignment of planets. One simply sees empty space in which no one, nobody else is home. Life is a cosmic flute. Humans are simply bipeds. The death of millions of starving Africans is helpful population control. The love a parent feels for their child is nothing more than a genetic impulse to control the species. Literature is simply typing and art is a joke. Everything you feel, everything you hold to passionately is simply neurons and sparks of electricity in the brain of a naked ape. Yet we want our lives to matter. People travel change jobs, crave love, seek experiences, act heroically, create, sculpt, and shape their lives as a quest for meaning. As humans, we are wired for the transcendent. We desire moments which will take our breath away. We feel stung by pain and robbed by death. We, are, we hunger after mystery. So what he's saying there is the logical conclusion of a life in a world without God is an emptiness and a meaninglessness. But we all live our lives with this overarching desire to see things work out and see things have meaning, beauty, passion, all of those kinds of things. So what hope is there for a world like this? 
1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's the good news, and that's the hope of the world. R.C. Sproul, in that same book, what, what, does it, what, do I, what does it mean to be saved, says this, that the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. So, God's answer is to bring a mediator into the world. A mediator is someone that can represent both sides in a dispute. But in the dispute between God and men, God is the offended party and we are the offenders. Jesus Christ becomes a mediator that brings God and men together. The man Christ Jesus, who is the testimony at the proper time. So we have a mediator in and through Jesus. So what is the gospel? What is this good news? Now, I owe almost all of this sermon to so many people, but this has just become a part of who I am. So what is a good definition of the gospel? This is my definition. It's been heavily influenced by my teachers. It says, the gospel is all that God does to save us in and through Jesus. Jesus himself is the gospel. He saves us through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return, and the renewal of all things. Jesus himself is the center of the gospel. Everything that we do, everything that we say is for him. Everything that we talk about is about him. He is the center of the message. So we don't want to add to the message, add our behavior and things that you should do to this message. We don't want to confuse the results of the gospel. We just want to present Jesus as the gospel in his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. All of these things are things that God does to save us. So let's look at this message together and let's marvel. How does his birth save us? Why is it important for Jesus to be born? He was born of a virgin, right? He was conceived of the Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary. He was fully God and fully man. He was fully God because only God is big enough to save us, right? But he was fully man because only mankind could um, have a representative in and through Jesus. He's both fully God and fully man. Anselm of Canterbury, in his famous essay, Curdeus Homo, which actually means why God became man, said this. The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. That it w- thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be a person who could. So basically, we owe the debt. God alone could pay the debt. God was glad to send a mediator in and through Jesus. He had to be fully God and fully man. That's part of the message of the gospel. 
What about his life? What's significant about his life? Like, why couldn't he just, like, do a touchdown dance when he became a two-year-old baby and just jet out of the world, right? Why is his life significant? Because he lived the life that we could never live. He lived the life that we should live. He was born a Jew. He was born under the law. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. So it's no longer about us. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so jesus lived the life that we could never live his life now becomes our life what we're most familiar with is his death the cross stands as the symbol of christianity he took our sins on himself on the tree, bodily, so that we could be reconciled to God. Our sins became his sins. He actually experienced the full measure of God's wrath that was rightly should be pointed at us, was pointed at Jesus, and he exhausted it so that all that is left for the people of God is mercy and grace. That's what took place on the cross. That is the death His resurrection, he appeared. If the resurrection is not real, that's why we sing this changes everything. Um, Even his life and his death, those things are significant. But if Jesus was not raised from the dead, everything else is a cruel joke, right? Jesus actually is alive. That gives us hope that God has accepted his payment for our sins, that we actually stand forgiven. His New, his resurrection from the dead gives us new life and new hope and new power. We don't think a lot about the ascension, but the ascension is Jesus returning to heaven. It's a symbol of his victory. It's essential for him to save us because when he is raised from the dead and he goes back into heaven, he actually seated at the right hand of the Father that says that this is finished And he also pours out the Holy Spirit on the church so that we don't keep repeating the same things over and over. He changes us from the inside out. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to walk out his will. And then, I mean, what we're all hoping for is the return and the renewal of all things. That Jesus is actually going to return. That the kingdom of God is going to swallow up the kingdom of this earth. That sin and suffering and death and evil will be no more. That is the message of the Christian gospel. Jesus himself is the center of that message. We don't want to add anything to that message. We don't want to take anything away from that message. We want to receive that message with joy in our hearts. And that's the message that we're called to proclaim. Listen. We're not called to save anyone. We simply do not possess the power. We don't have persuasive enough speech to change anyone's heart. But this message has changed and saved people for over 2,000 years. It's the same message that brought you into the kingdom. It is the same message that will bring your neighbors into the kingdom, that will bring your children into the kingdom. It is this message that saves This is the faith that's delivered once and all for all the saints. There is a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his return, those are the good news that we are to proclaim. Now, so that's the message that stands at the center. Now let's let's look at the implications because this, this is 
That's the message that's at the center. Now we're going to look at the gospel results. This is what the world, whether it will acknowledge it or not, is looking for. First, let's look at justification. Justification addresses people's guilt problem, right? You don't have to teach anyone to feel guilty. It is a natural human response. Justification is that we have been declared legally not guilty and perfectly righteous because of Jesus' work on our behalf. So his death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. So I like to explain it like this. Um, Now, just imagine there were college students somewhere. Maybe you were a college student at one time. You got your first checkbook. Um, Maybe you were overdrafted at a certain point, right? And so what happens when you get overdrafted? Like you get all these late fees and penalties, and it's like you can never keep your head above water. Somebody told me this story. I I don't have any firsthand personal knowledge. But like if that happens to you, I mean, it's really hard to dig yourself out of a hole. And sometimes we think about um, the good news of the gospel and its implications is that just that somebody comes in and pays all of our late fees, you know? And that would be good news in and of itself. But this is what justification actually means. Not only are our late fees paid and we're brought back up to a zero balance, but actually we own the entire bank, right? Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. Everything that Jesus did on our behalf becomes our record. That's the way that God views us now. It's not on the basis of your performance. So justification deals with our guilt problem, and the world is longing for something to do with our guilt. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right, reconciliation. Reconciliation deals with our anxiety problem, right? I mean, anxiety is a universal human experience. And at its core, anxiety comes from this fear that something is not right inside of us. And ultimately, our relationship is not secure with God. Reconciliation means that we have peace with God objectively. Hostility has ceased between us and God. And that truth alone leads to subjective peace. So oftentimes we're looking to um, our circumstances and those things being solved as the cure to our anxiety. Like if I could just know how this thing's going to turn out, then I wouldn't be anxious anymore. But really, the place that we're supposed to place our faith and our hope is on the fact that we have been reconciled to God, that we, he is favorable towards us, that we have been reconciled to him. And the only thing that remains for us is relationship and grace. Also, adoption. This meets our relational need. Everyone has a need to belong. Everyone wants to be a part. This is a miracle that God himself adopts us into his family as sons and daughters. That's the result of Jesus coming in his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of those things lead us to this relationship that we have with God, that we are adopted sons and daughters. That's good news. People want a place to belong. And God says, I choose you, right? I don't choose, <laughs> I don't choose the wealthy or the noble or the wise. I choose the lowly things to despise that, right? So you don't have to have it all together. The good news is we get to belong to his family. So that's the results of the gospel. And now I want to talk about, I'm just going to close with this, because this is this next circle, right? When you 
this is where people start adding stuff to that message of the gospel, right? This is the result of everything that God's done inside of our hearts. This is where discipleship happens, right? When we start talking about following Jesus and having a relationship with him and being with him and becoming like him and following him on mission. That's the result of the gospel. That's not something that you want to add to it. You want to hold out this message of Jesus and his forgiveness of sinners as primary and discipleship and mission and those kinds of things are separate. Also the fruit of the spirit, right? We want to say a Christian is going to be like this and they're going to turn out like this and they're going to look like this. Yes, God progressively changes us, but it's not part of the gospel itself. But the gospel does lend us to some certain trajectories. It makes us peacemakers, right? To be able, those that have experienced the gift of reconciliation, to be able to step into the most complex of situations and begin to speak God's peace into those. So God's gospel makes us peacemakers. Second Corinthians chapter 5, ambassadors. We get to represent the king with the message of reconciliation and hope to the world. That's the conduct that comes from the fruit of the gospel. We become advocates, right? That's what Jesus does in the book of 1 John. He's our advocate. So we become an advocate for people that don't have a voice. We begin to step into situations where there's injustice, and we begin to speak up on behalf of those that can't speak for themselves. So the gospel conduct is absolutely separate from the gospel, but it is um, a necessary entailment of the gospel. It pushes us in a certain direction. So what we want to do as people is we want to distinguish from the message of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel so that we don't add to it and we don't take away from it, right? But most of the time, like we can spend our time in this circle right here. And if you do that, you begin to assume that message that's supposed to be primary and supposed to be at the center. And so the more that we focus in on that message that's at the center, it becomes near and dear to us and it becomes the message that we long to proclaim and to share with other people. I'm going to close with this quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's probably the best book written on the gospel in the 21st century. This is in her introduction. She says, Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly has some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you. Right? So that's, that's a clarifying statement. The Bible isn't primarily about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. Now, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. 
There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle. He's a missing puzzle piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. So he is at the center. We don't want to move on too quickly from that message. It's that message that saves us. It's that message that changes us. It's that message that came looking for you when you weren't looking for him. It's that message that moves us from death to life. And so I just simply... As a response today, I hold out this message. The proper response, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you want to believe right now, is to respond in repentance and faith to this message. We turn away from our own kinds of thinking and wanting to live life our way and we turn towards this message of Jesus and his salvation and we let his life and his death and his resurrection speak for us. All you have to do is simply believe, I want Jesus to represent me. I don't want to represent myself before this holy God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we collectively marvel at this message that changes everything. Thank you for coming to look for me over 20 years ago when I wasn't looking for you. Thank you for coming to look for so many in this room. Thank you that you're searching right now for hearts that are disconnected from you. I pray that you would give individuals the gift of faith to believe that this message is for them and that it can change everything. I pray that you would be near to us. I pray that you would equip us with this message and that it would be precious to us. Protect us from adding to or taking away from this message, but allow it simply to be the power of God so that we experience salvation, but not only us, for our city and for the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.